Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Bevy Smith, congratulations on Bevelations. I am so excited to have you back on Leave Your Mark. You were my very first episode. Wow. I didn't even realize that because remember when I came to see you, I was in a real fog. Remember it was like, yes, page six TV was about to end. I was in the last throes of taping. Yes. And I was just in a fog, as you now know from reading the book. Yeah. <laughs> so for everyone listening, her book comes out in January. It is Bevelations, Lessons from a Mother Auntie Bestie. Bevy is the current host of Sirius XM's Gracie Award-winning Bevelations on Radio Andy. She's a former co-host of the entertainment news show, Page Six TV, and Bravo's Fashion Queens. And she's a motivational speaker. And by the way, she's a motivational tweeter. <laughs> and this memoir captures your experience transitioning from a fashion advertising executive into a media personality, all while living a big, authentic, and unapologetic life, which is the best part. And you really share from how you went from a seemingly perfect, but ultimately unhappy existence to having this revelation, this awakening of genuine fulfillment. So we're going to get into all of this, but let's just start with the fact that in your 20s and 30s, you learn the advertising business from the ground up. You made the leap to Vive. Then you moved to Rolling Stone. You're this beautiful and successful Black woman who doesn't fit any single mold, certainly in the fashion industry. How did you navigate all that? You just sort of like catapulted through all of this and you didn't have connections. I mean, you built this on your own. Yeah. Good question. Complicated question. So many different parts of it. You know, in the book, I write about my amazing mentors the ones that I met when I was 18 years old, Jeff McKay, Kenny Valenti, Gail Malloy, and Chuck Cohen. Uh, by the way, four white people who were my mentors. I actually didn't even have mentors that looked like me until I was in my TV career and I was like in my 40s. So um, I always think that that's something very interesting mm-hmm. to note because for a lot of people that look for mentors, your mentor doesn't always have to have the same background, the same experience that you have to actually be able to guide, help, shepherd you through life. It would have been great if they could have had some of the same cultural experiences, but what they gave me was invaluable. So that really starts my career. That starts me on my journey of being in fashion advertising. And these four amazing people 
really gave me a lot of tools. They gave me a lot of information, but most importantly, they gave me opportunities. And they weren't just mentors. They were actually more like sponsors of sorts. They were kind of more like advocates, you know, especially Jeff McKay, like he gave me a a great job and said, what is it that you want to do? Gave me an opportunity. And I was like, oh, I think I want to be a media director. I want to do media. And he said, okay. And he allowed me to do that. What was it about you back then that inspired these people to take you under their wing? Gosh, you will really have to ask them that. But if I had to guess, Jeff McKay always tells me that I came to him so very fully formed. He says all the time, my parents had done such a great job with me. Um, I was a very well-read person. I was a very curious person. I was a native New Yorker. So I had a lot of just kind of an innate cosmopolitan approach to life. Um, and also, you know, I love the arts and, you know, if you're going to be in advertising, you have to know a lot about art and different things like that and culture and being a New York City kid, you kind of learn it through osmosis. <laughs> and so I think that that had a lot to do with why people gave me opportunities. They saw that I was not only eager to learn, but I was also a quick learner and that I probably had the chops for it. I really can't tell you what they saw in me, except that Jeff always tells me that when he met me, I was divine. That's what he always said. You were fabulous, darling, when I met you. When you were 18 years old, you were fabulous. And I'm like, really? Okay. Thank you. So you write in the book, and I love this line. By the way, the book has so many good lines. Clothing is a calling card. And I wanted to announce without saying a word that a Harlem girl was entering the room. What does that mean to you? Oh, what that means to me is being authentically myself. I'm never shying away from my culture, from my Blackness. I'm from my community because as you know, my love, Harlem is a part of Manhattan because I know you have listeners from all over. And I always like to say Manhattan is the epicenter of the world. So for me, I simply took a train, literally two train stops away. And there I was at my feet were finance, media, fashion, entertainment. Everything was right there. Two train stops away. Can you imagine such a thing? And so Living in Manhattan was one thing. It's great, right? But I also understood when I started going out and being the only Black person in these very rare air fashion spaces, I thought it was very important to make the differentiation. I could have said I was from Manhattan because I am from Manhattan, but I chose to say I was from Harlem because I knew what that meant. I knew that it would make people curious. I knew it would make some people disdainful. And that was okay for me as well, because then I took it as an opportunity to educate people about my community. I love that. I love that. So this is a quote that I really felt. So you have this like illustrious, you're this media director, you're Rolling Stone. You're literally at the top of your game. And then you say, I was on a career trajectory Mm -hmm. ascending rapidly. And I realized that very few people at the top of the heap were actually happy. Yes, they had everything, all the adoring fans. This is my favorite line, the not so adoring team, the perks, but many of them were miserable. So at 38 years old, top of your game, you quit. You just were like, no, that's not going to be me. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's just not going to be me. And that's the reason why I was so excited that you were reading the book, because, you know, we come from the same background. Of course, you didn't do advertising. You were in the PR and the marketing the branding 
part of it, but it's the same thing. You're in these spaces. Everyone should be so happy. We're doing work that is a fantasy kind of job. We're surrounded by beauty every single day, right? And we have access to all that beauty, right? Yeah. So you think it would be just the dream job. And for a time it is. And then I realized that it's a hamster wheel. Um, I realized that it was a mean-spirited business at its core. It really is a mean-spirited business. It's a business built on making women certainly adapt themselves in every single which way that it's possible. And then, of course, they can sell you the solution to all of your problems. Of course. And, of course, it never works, right? And so I looked at my life when I was 33 years old, when I had that meltdown in Milan moment which is the ugly side of my beautiful life chapter in the book, I realized that I was living this dream life, but it had become a nightmare for me. I was no longer satisfied. And to quote the Rolling Stones, I couldn't get no satisfaction out of the gig anymore. You know, I really couldn't. And I didn't know which way to turn. I only knew that I had this deep, just relentless malaise over me. And I felt crippled and I felt trapped. And I don't like to feel that way. And that's when I started plotting my escape. But it took five years to do that. And that's one of the parts of the book that I really want to stress, especially for people that are listening to podcasts like yours, podcasts that really teach people and and actually inspire people to make changes in their lives and, and leave a mark and things like that. But I don't advocate that folks, everyone should not be an entrepreneur because it's a very tough road to hoe. And it's not as easy as people make it seem. And I also don't advocate that people are disillusioned with their jobs. They should just quit their jobs because I certainly didn't. At 33, I realized I was disillusioned with my gig. I didn't quit for another five years. Yeah. To figure out what it was that I wanted to do. First of all, you have to come to grips with the fact that you want to do something different. And you want to do something different, even though what you're doing, most people would die to do. Right. We had these careers that people would simply trample someone to get to, you know, right? Yes, 100%. I mean, people would line up like for miles to take the job you had. And also, I I think it's really important to mention, we put so much emphasis on goals and achievement. And I think one of the things that you speak about, which really resonated with me is that you were missing out on so many like your sister's wedding and so many different things that you couldn't attend because you were in another country for fashion week or whatever it was. You were so caught up in like mm. the lifestyle of the job yeah. Yeah. that it sort of didn't leave room for anything else. Yeah. It didn't really leave room for me to connect with people in any kind of meaningful way. You know, I would go on dates and have a great date and the guy would say, well, when can I see you? And I would say, well, next week I leave for PT which is in Florence, and then I go to Milan. Then I go over to Paris, and I think I have to double back and go to Rome because I need to go and see the Valentino folks and the Fendi people. And so I'll be back in probably like two, three weeks. No one wants to hear that. That's yeah. not sexy. But at the time, I thought it was so sexy. I thought it was glamorous and fabulous. I was like, yes, darling, what man wouldn't want to be with a woman that has this glamorous, chic schedule? And at the end of the day, that's not what makes a relationship. Like you can't develop a relationship with a travel itinerary. You You just can't. And I was just doing all these things. And I was very, very much caught up because, you know, it was something I dreamed of doing. 
And to reach that, and you know, I'm, I'm from 150th Street and 8th Avenue. My parents are from Jim Crow South. For me to be able to sit on high in these kind of spaces was really quite revolutionary and it was a real feat. So it's not easy to give that up. You get caught up in the persona that you built and created. Let's talk about your parents for a second. And I know you lost your dad very recently, so I'm so sorry about that. But they were pretty incredible in the way that they raised you because, I mean, I love how you said that they didn't let you like hang out on a street corner. You had to be going somewhere. So, and they were super into education and museums Mm -hmm. and reading and all the culture. What did they think of your job? Well, when I was at the advertising agency, that made sense. When I get to Vibe and Rolling Stone, that makes sense because that's something tangible. You can show them your name in the masthead in the magazine and things like that. Yeah. When I decided to quit my job to pursue, literally, I just want to like do TV and I want to write and I want to like act and I want to. They're like, excuse you, what? <laughs> no, you know what I mean. And of course, very very concerned about why are you giving these things up. How are you going to support yourself? And all very logical, good questions. But, you know, they saw through the years. And I'm so glad that my dad, who passed away in April, I'm so glad that he had a chance to see me become successful again in this space. Because when I decided to do this at the age of 38, there was certainly no guarantee. There was certainly no blueprint out there laid out for me. Um, And so it was very much, we were in the weeds together. But it was really great that my dad and, of course, my mom. My mom has been able to celebrate a lot of things with me. My dad, once he got into his late 80s, early 90s, his health was declining. But my mom was able to, has been able to celebrate. She's been to every single one of my TV sets. She's come, you know, when I rang the NASDAQ opening bell, she was there. You know, different things like that. But my dad got a chance to see the contract for this book and to know that there was going to be a book in bookstores with his last name on it, you know, and that it was his daughter's name. Oh, he's, he's watching you. He's watching all of this. So in this five years of prep of the bevy exodus from media life or advertising life, I should say, what were you seeking besides entertainment and television, all of that? What were your goals and how did you map them? The goals were creativity and freedom. As you know, from reading the book, I have a chapter called Manhunt, and I talk a lot about, I slept with a lot of creatives, you know? Yeah, that'll do it. (laughs) I was amused to a lot of creatives because at the time I didn't know that I could be a creative. So I said, the next best thing is to actually, to sleep with them. Then you're in the company of creatives all the time. And I love being in, in the company of creatives. And so that's what I was seeking, creativity and freedom to pursue my passions and whatever interested me. Like, you know, it's just like, oh, I'll take that up. Oh, and you need the time. You need the latitude to be able to do that. And so that's what I was seeking. And the way I prepped myself was, you know, I read two books that really, really kind of set me on my path. Um, The Artist Way by Julia Cameron. And that gave me the permission to start calling myself a creative. Even though I had always been creative, the way I even positioned um, my sales pitch at Vibe and at Rolling Stone was far more creative than it was in a traditional kind of advertising sales, a thing where you have the PowerPoint and all that. Of course, I had all of that 
I did all my research, all my numbers. I knew that kind of thing backwards and forwards. But what really made me stand out was the way I presented and the stories that I would tell. I was a, I was a born storyteller. So that was something. And Julia Cameron gave me the permission to understand that I was a creative. And then, of course, the morning pages. That's also in the book, The Artist's Way, as well as The Artist's Date, where you go out by yourself and you go and you feed your passion and your creativity. So it's going to a one-woman show. It might be going ice skating. It could be anything, just whatever strikes your fancy. And I did a lot of that. And that was wonderful to be able to go and sit in um, the Cooper Hewitt backyard and lay on the grass and literally paint and then go look at an exhibit, like just genius. And then the other book was The Four Agreements. And that really helped me set my pace as well. What was the plan for money though? Because this well, is all great, but like. Well, I had money saved. Okay. Um, and the interesting thing is that I was quite naive because I had money saved and I knew I had enough money for probably two years of rent. But what I didn't realize is that my entire life had been expensed. I didn't pay for cell phones. I never paid for a meal. I never paid for transportation. So my entire life as an advertising sales executive, it was all T&E, it was all an expense account. And so I didn't take that into account. So when I quit, I took my own sepia version of Eat, Pray, Love. I went to uh, South Africa. I went to Cape Town and Joburg. And I went to Zambia. And then I went to Brazil. Um, and I went to Costa Rica. So those were great, lovely, expansive trips. I always joke, when I took those trips, I finally realized what resort wear is really about. It's for people that actually chase summer all year round, right? And so it didn't make sense. I was like, yes, resort. I finally did it. And so I spent a lot of money doing that. But then I also spent a lot of money taking really great classes. I took improv classes and acting classes and screenwriting classes and photography classes and DJ classes and everything that I've ever wanted to do, all of it creative. And then I started spending money by going out to Los Angeles, trying to meet people that were working in TV and film and trying to find an agent and different things like that. So I spent money. I invested in myself. But what happened is <laughs> I counted on the money depleting in such a rapid fashion. And yeah. then that's when the rubber hit the road. And that's the broke but blissful part of the book. I know you embarked on this at 38, but I do think it's worth noting. I mean, I know you were shy when you were little because we talked about that in episode one. But Susan Batson, the legendary acting coach, said that who you are is a character enough and that you are the book and media already. So you literally like, (laughs) you're like born to do this. It is so in your blood. And I know your story, you set out to do this, but you were so picky also about what it was that you were going to say yes to, even in the space that you were aiming to go into. And I think it's worth noting, you did not get your first TV show till 45. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the Andy Cohn part of this. Story. Oh, when Bevy met Andy, or when Andy met Bevy. It was a chapter that's devoted to me and Andy. Um, you know, I met Andy when he was a TV executive before he was on TV. I met him through our friend Hunter Hill who used to be an advertising executive at Paper Magazine. And I told Hunter that I wanted to do TV. I told everyone I wanted to do TV when I quit. And Hunter, I guess, really took that and absorbed it. And he was on 
I want to say Fire Island or something. And he ran into Andy and I guess they were hanging out. And Andy mentioned that he was casting the Tim Gunn show. And um, he was looking for a woman to kind of be the kind of comic relief, you know, because Tim Gunn is so droll and, and, you know, that kind of sardonic dry wit. So he needed somebody a little more razzle-dazzle, that kind of thing. And so Hunter told Andy about me. And then he called me and said, you're going to get a call from Bravo. And I was like, oh, I'm so excited. I love Bravo. You know, I, I was obsessed with Inside the Actors Studio. So I'm like, oh, good. I'll get a chance to meet James Lipton. That's really what I thought. I did the audition. And then literally like the next day or something, I got a contract. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be on TV. I'm going to be on Bravo. Oh my and that was so quick. And it was so quick. It was literally like months after I had left Rolling Stone. And it was so great. And then I looked at the contract and I felt like the contract wasn't great. And then I had my friends who work in TV look at the contract and they were like, no, this is really a bad contract. And then my lawyer was like, yeah, it would be very irresponsible to let you sign this. And um, he tried to negotiate and they were not in the negotiating space, which is something else that I want you guys to take note of. Because I'm sure there are people going to watch this that want to be in entertainment, that want to be in TV and things like that. When you don't have a resume, when you don't have much experience in these entertainment spaces, your contract is apt to be really, really shitty. It's not going to be the best contract. It just isn't. And then you have to decide what you can live with. You know, yeah. um, we all enter into contracts. Some are better than others. I know that this one that they have put forth to me, just really, I often said, my face would have been on the side of the bus and I would have been riding the bus. And if I have a TV show, I'm not supposed to have to ride the bus. Like if I choose to ride the bus, that's fine. But I shouldn't be forced to ride the bus because that's how little they're paying me, right? That is the best analogy ever. And by the way, I'm picturing you Sarah Jessica Parker style on the side of the bus right now. Right, exactly, exactly. And I actually got to that when I got paid six TV, then I was on the side of the bus. Yes, yes, you were. That kind of stuff, so. But that is so weird because that wasn't even ever really a goal for me. But I certainly knew I didn't want to be riding the bus and being on the side of the bus. So when I turned it down, Andy and his boss at the time, Amy Intracaso Davis, had me come in and meet with them. And I came in and, you know, I had on Masoni and I was carrying my Goyard and I had on Oscar de la Renta top. All the things, all the things. All the things, darling. The Yves Saint Laurent, you know, tributes. It was all the madness, darling. I had on so much garment, so much. I had to let them see what they were missing out. And Andy said, you're even better in real life than you were on tape. We're going to work together. It took seven years. Wow. But sure enough, he found the right project. And that right project was Bravo's Fashion Queens. And then since then, we've been tied at the hip together. You know, um, when Fashion Queens went off the air, Andy got a deal with Sirius XM. He called me and said, uh, do you want to do radio? I said, Andy, I do not want to do a fashion show on the radio. I'm just not interested. I don't want to do anything about fashion. He said, oh, no. I imagine it being like your Twitter feed. So it could be whatever you want. I said, it could be whatever I want. He said, it could be whatever you want. I said, okay, I'll take it. So I've always, like you said, been very discerning about what it is I'm going to take. I, I don't have a spirit of desperation. Yeah. That's a real luxury, though. Because a lot of people would just jump because they're like, I, I want to be on TV. I'm going to do whatever it takes. And nice. I think that you held out for the right reasons and it's paid off. Yeah. Um, I want to share this quote from Pharrell that he says about you. Most people are pretty singular in the way they see the world and themselves, not Bevy. She's magnanimous in the way she looks at things. 
The clarity in her perspective really highlights how magical she is. Funny, wise, well-experienced, empathetic, colorful. Bevy brings the spirit of humanity wherever she goes. I want to be more like her. We should all want to be more like her. So first of all, it's like, hi, Pharrell Williams said that about you. So that's like, pinch yourself right there. Yes. But what is this perspective that he's speaking of? And how do you convey these lessons of your perspective in the book? Well, I think that when you read the book, you hear me talk about Lulu Brown Bevy. That's what he's seeing. He's seeing the core of me. He's seeing Lulu Brown Bevy. And that's the magnanimous. And that's the the spirited, and that's the authenticity, and that's all these things that he's talking about that he sees, that's really who it is. It's not, you know, I, in the book, I go through all my different personas, you know. I start out as Lil Brown Bevy, and then Lil Brown Bevy is bullied, and she's a nerd girl, and she doesn't want to be that anymore, and she becomes MC Bevsky because it's the advent of hip-hop, and everyone is a rapper, so I'm MC Bevsky. And then I morph into... Big Bet from Uptown, and that's like the heyday of the golden era of hip-hop, the 90s, where I'm hanging out with Tupac and Biggie and Puffy, and I'm friends with all these guys, right? And that's Big Bet from Uptown. And then I become Beverly Smith fashionista. But this entire time, Lou Brown Bevy is shrouded away. Lou Brown Bevy is hidden. We don't hear from Lou Brown Bevy. The only time Lou Brown Bevy comes out to play is when I hang out with Tupac, because Tupac is also a very sensitive soul masquerading with this bravado and this larger-than-life persona. And so we connected in that way. We saw each other. We saw each other in the middle of chaos and, and all kinds of shenanigans. We saw each other. We saw the real, true spirit of each other. Um, and so it wasn't until I made the decision when I actually quit my job and everything that I was going to let little Brown Berry come out to play and I was going to make sure that she showed up far more than all the other personas. And that's really paid off really well for me. And, you know, he said these wonderful things about me, but Whoopi Goldberg also said wonderful things, and Dapper Dan, and Elaine Welteroff. And the reason why people say these things about me is because I've let them see me. Those words would not be said about me if I was just Beverly Smith fashionista. It might be, oh, she's fabulous. Oh, she's amazing. It would be something surface. It would never be anything deep. And I wanted to get to that, that I wanted to get to the core and I wanted people to see my core. And so um, that's how that happened. What made you change your name? I was looking for something to do where I could change my life. And I said, well, what can I do right now? I was in Milan and it was like nine o'clock in the morning, which means what is 3am in New York. I couldn't call anyone. I was crying on my frete sheets and the de Savoia. I was, you know, devastated. And um, I said, well, what can I do? And I wrote out this manifesto about the pros and the cons of my life and why, you know, I was so unhappy. And I said, well, I need to start changing the way I'm being seen. And I also need to let go of this life that I built. It's like a gilded cage. And I said, I don't want people calling me Beverly from Vibe Magazine. I want to be Beverly. I don't want to be connected to a gig because if I'm going to leave this gig, I have to start building up myself so that I'm enough. I don't need a Beverly from Vibe or Beverly from Rolling Stone or Beverly from wherever. It needs to be Beverly is just enough, stands on her own. 
And I said, you know what? I'm going to rebrand myself. Of course, I didn't use those terms because you have to remember something. Personal branding was not- it didn't exist, yeah. It didn't exist 21 years ago, which is, this is what it was 21 years ago. Personal branding didn't exist. But I said, I'm going to change my name. And I came back home and I told people to start calling me Bevy Smith. I said, you can introduce me as Bevy Smith and you can tell people that I work at Vibe, but I do not want that to be the lead headline. And people really actually did it. And that's how I started changing my name. So smart. So smart. So what about this time in your life made you want to put this all down on paper? Oh, well, the people have been telling me I should write a book forever. The people, the Twitter people, the Twitterverse. The Twitterverse, my agents, you know, my friends. And I had been doing my seminar, Dining with Bevy Life with Vision. And um, I had all these lovely people that come and hear my story, hear my testimony. And we would sit and we would talk for three hours. And I would tell them my story and they would ask me questions and all this kind of stuff. And folks were like, oh, you should just write a book. And um, at the time I was with CAA and my agent, who was a gift of all gifts, said, oh, I'm going to take you over to the literary agent and um, met with her. She was awesome. And I was like, yeah, I'll write the book. And, you know, never did anything. And like literally a year and a half went by and she said, she called me up and she's like, Debbie, come in. We're going to work together. We're going to write a one sheet proposal because we need to start getting you out there with this book. I'm like, okay. I go in and meet with her. We spend an hour together. I tell her stories. She writes the things down. She sends me back a one sheet. I said, this looks good. Fine. And then I'm, I'm like, okay, you're, you're going to take it out, peddle the wares, see what happens. And then I get a call from Andy saying, have you ever thought about writing a book? I said, as a matter of fact, I just met with my agent about writing a book. He's like, oh my God, that's so great. I just got an imprint over at Henry Holt. And I was like, okay. And he's like, meet with us. And I'm like, okay. And then real candor, I actually told my agent, I said, okay, now, Andy's my boy, but it's got to be a competitive break. Like, I'm not going to just give him the book. Yeah. And to his credit, it was quite a competitive rate. So <laughs> that was fine. And that's how I got, you know, how I wrote the book. The process of getting a book deal was really kind of that simple. What was the hardest part of this whole project? The stops and starts. I was working at Page Six TV when I started the book and I was miserable there. So it's very hard to write. It's very hard to do anything when you're like deeply depressed. So it's not the best time to kind of focus on anything. And when all you can think about is like, it felt like Groundhog's Day. You know, I had to be on set so early in the morning. You know me, I'm a nighttime person. I love my social life. But if you have to be on set at like 8 a.m. or something, how can you be out until one o'clock in the morning? You really can't. Yeah. Um, I didn't like that kind of lifestyle. I didn't especially love the um, content of the show a lot of the time. I was able to steer clear of um, gossip and things like that. I was able to navigate the content in my own way. But, you know, it's, it was definitely a job to do that, to make sure I wasn't alienating people that I built up relationships with, you know. Pharrell's not the only celebrity that I have a friendship with. And yeah. it's a show that is fueled by gossip. So I had to really very much let the producers know, well, you know, I'm invited to all these things. I'm invited to people's homes. I'm invited to people's birthday parties. I will not be coming back and reporting anything untoward. If I see anything, I've got to tell you, I'm never going to tell you anything. So that was tough. I was in a, a job that I was not happy at. So that was really hard. 
also when I'm in the middle of the final edit, a global pandemic happens. Right. I get COVID and then my dad gets COVID. Like I'm well for like maybe a week and my dad gets COVID and within three days he dies. So Mm. that takes, you know, obviously I'm not going to be writing, you know, right away after something like that. Um, And then George Floyd gets murdered. I mean, it was just like one thing after another. And then I have to tell you this last one, which is also so bonkers. Then I'm doing the audio book. And while I'm doing the audio book, I get a breast cancer scare. So while I'm recording the audio book, I'm awaiting results to see if I have breast cancer. So (laughs) if it wasn't one thing, it was another. Thank God I'm fine. It was all benign. Mm -hmm. But, you know, imagine having that kind of like albatross. So it was not easy. 2020 was just, it needs to go. It was a daunting year, I tell you that much. But you know, it's a weird thing. Um, You know, my family, for the most part, except losing our, my dad, our dad, um, our family is intact. We have kept our ties that bind. We're very, very close still. And so I feel very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. I feel very grateful that I retained work. I feel very grateful that I actually picked up new clients during a global pandemic. Amazing. Um, yeah. So, you know, it wasn't all bad, but it definitely needs to go. Yeah. Can you explain, and I'm sure this actually needs to be added, I think, to the dictionary, but what is a bevelation? Well, a bevelation is supposed to be like a revelation, but you're telling it to Bevy or Bevy is saying it. So on my show, Sometimes when I have celebrities on and they'll tell me something that maybe they haven't really shared with anyone else, I'll say, oh my gosh, that's a revelation. And that's what it is. It's just something that you're revealing for the first time or, or revealing to, um, you know, the public. And it just kind of feels like, uh, really? And it doesn't have to be something scandalous. It could be something just as lovely and sensitive. And like, you know, when I had Kevin Hart on and we talked about what it felt like to do the movie Soul Plane that was supposed to be his big break. And then it comes out and it's bootlegged widely and it's also widely panned as like, and now it's synonymous with bootleg air travel. You know what I mean? And so, I, you know, we talked about that. I, like he stopped down. He wasn't the energetic Kevin Hart. He was very introspective. And we talked about that, about what it felt like to have something that you thought was going to catapult you into stardom. And then it comes out and it makes you a laugh and stuff. Yeah. And that was a revelation when he talked to me about that. So it doesn't have to be something that's gossipy or mean or salacious. Did you have any revelations while you were writing this book, meaning that you remembered something that you just forgot about? I had new revelations while I was writing this book. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the book is also a vision board for myself. So I talk about the things that I want for my life. I talk about the things that I'm currently manifesting. And so that's one of the things that came about, those revelations that, you know, I had to write it down that, you know what, once I get my own TV show, I'm going to get my fairy godmother show where I'm helping people and, you know, kind of transforming folks in their lives and all that kind of stuff. I'm going to get that show and I'm going to take a bow. I have no desire to be on TV, on the screen forever in a day. God bless everyone that loves to work. I don't love the work. <laughs> so, you know, doing TV is work. Is Of course, it's not hard work like some jobs are. 
but I don't want to always be dolled up in hair and makeup. I don't always want people primping at me and touching me with garments and all that. You know, Malibu Bevy is calling me. And with my new life, where I'm an art and architecture curator and I have my film and TV production company, Malibu Bevy gets to come out and play. Oh, I love Malibu Bevy. So let's talk about this vision board. So is this just like your way of sort of self-fulfilling prophecies? Like you're just saying it, you're believing it, you're putting it out there and therefore it will be. Well, and also you do the work, right? So you have to, that's a big part of it. <laughs> I wish it was as easy as pasting some pictures on a piece of cardboard. Yes. Um, you know what I mean? No, you have to do the work. So yes, but it is like, you know, I've already started doing the work for the production and everything. I actually have a production deal. Great. Um, 2021, you will see produced by Bevy Smith on your TV screen. Amazing. Um, yeah. And so that's happening. Um, I actually just was an art consultant on a film with an Oscar winner. Amazing. Um, and I actually procured the art that's in a lot of the scenes because I have a lot of relationships with very famous artists. And I called them up and my friend asked me for some phone numbers. I said, would you allow me to do it? Because I say in my book that I want to go on the art and architecture curation. She was like, sure. And so I did it. So are these all Mama, I Made It moments? Like, do these all count? These all count. They're all Mama, I Made It moments. Because, you know, I don't believe that there's any such thing as a big break. A big break is actually a culmination of a myriad of breaks. Um, and then it becomes a big snowball. And then it burst out onto the scene. And people are like, oh, my gosh, look at her. You're her big break. No, no, no. There were a myriad of breaks. And this is just a culmination of all of them. So yeah, looking back, people will be able to be like, oh, wow, look at what she did. And they'll be like, well, this is a long journey. You know, even like for Fashion Queen, seven years, it's a long time to wait for a TV show. Yeah, for sure. But the best part about the seven years between Rolling Stone and Fashion Queens is that I became an accidental entrepreneur and started Dinner with Bevy. Yeah, no, I know. And then Dinner with Bevy begats all of my amazing relationships with celebrities, which means when I get fashion queen, celebrities want to come on the show, which means when I get Bevelations, the radio show, I get incredible guests because people know me, they respect me, and they have good vibes about me. They have good feelings about me. So it was dinner with Bevy and going broke that made me an accidental entrepreneur. And so therefore it enhanced my career. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point. I mean, you planted all these seeds, right? And then you were able to sort of reap those benefits later on, which makes perfect sense. Yeah. But you're still a big proponent of a job is just a job. Yes. So how do you practice that? You have all these goals, but you're trying to keep it compartmentalized as just like, this is a job. How do you do that? Well, I feel like a, a most of the work that I do now, it's really not just a job because so much of it is about me. And, you know, when you work a traditional job, it's not about you. It's about the brand. It's about the company. There's a corporate ethos and all of that. There's a better ethos now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I don't feel like I work a job. I, I felt like page six was a job, but I don't feel like Bevelations is the grind of a job. No, it's your brand. It's your brand for yeah. sure. If you could pick one piece of advice from the book to share. Mm. I know it's so hard because there's like a gazillion things, but people will have to read it. Yeah. But one piece of advice that you feel like is just um, so good. 
There's so many things, but I would definitely say do the work. Do the work. Um, and run your race. Please don't compare yourself to anyone else. Right now we're living in a world where everyone's looking at the other person that's next to you, behind you, in front of you, and saying, why not me? Well, why not you? Because that's not your journey. That's not your story. That's their story. Now go out and make sure your story is what you want it to be. And, um, you know, that comes back to doing the work, finding the work that you're passionate about, finding your purpose and understanding who you are. Like I know now, you know, the reason why I'm going to do a fairy godmother show is because I'm a teacher, I'm a guide, and I'm a mentor. That's really who I am. If I hadn't become talent, I probably would have been a talent agent or something like that, someone who grooms people. Because I'm really good at that. Like I can see people's gifts a mile away and I can tell people what they should be doing. I can look at people and I know that's the reason why I have so many successful friends because I, I gravitate towards winners. It's the weirdest thing. I really do. Like That's a good habit. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. No, but I have a lot of successful friends and it's not like we met and they were successful, but it's just something I saw it in them. And I'm like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. you've got it. And I can tell people, you got it. Go forth with that. Go toward that. Do the work so that, you know, I have a, a story about a young man. You know, the mother part of the book is what many of my adopted gay sons call me. They call me mother. And um, the auntie part is the young women that see me on TV, the girls that are under the age of 40 that see me on TV and think of me as their cool auntie. And the best is for us, the contemporaries, you know, who see me on TV or hear me on the radio and feel like, I would like to have a cocktail with her. I would like to have dinner with her. I would like to take a trip with her. So that's the titles of everything. All of the above. (laughs) Right. But one of my sons, CJ, when I met him, he told me he was a creative genius. And I said, well, what? how can you stand on that? What have you done that's a creative genius moment? And he was taken aback. And then he really kind of understood what I was saying to him. And he did the work. And now he has a huge business called the Creative Genius Report. And he really, he's living up to the name. But I challenged him on that. And yeah. I'm very good at that. And um, that's one of my gifts. So I've done the work. And I want you to do the work, all you folks out here who are listening to us. Because, you know, once you do that, once you actually do the work, once you have a real foundation to build on, see, no one can ever take any of this from me. It doesn't matter. That's why it didn't matter when Page Six TV got canceled. It didn't matter about Fashion Queens getting canceled. I've already built my brand. So it doesn't really matter. I'm Bevy Smith. I set out to be Bevy Smith and it doesn't have to have Bevy Smith of black, that, that behind the name. Just the name alone is enough. That's my stamp. That's my imprint. I love it. Your mantra or your new mantra is everything is as it should be. Yes. This has been a really rough year. So the fact that you still stand by that is pretty incredible. Why do you believe that everything is as it should be? Because when you start looking at the way things unfold, um, it may not become evident immediately. But what I've learned in life is that if you have patience, by and by, you will understand why these things happen. And it will all make sense. It is about having a positive outlook towards it, though. Because if you feel like a woe is me or you feel like, why is things never going my way? Like, I guess there are a myriad of things that I could look at in my life and be like, oh my gosh, that was so horrible to happen. But you know, I feel like that Frank Sinatra song I did in my way, 
regrets. I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Like I literally, I don't, with the exception of my dad dying in the global pandemic, I've led a very blessed and charmed life. I really have. And even with my dad passing, I know that there's something going to come out of that. There's going to be something that's going to show up. First of all, my dad's already shown up in my dreams, which was amazing. He was perfect in every way. But there's going to be something that's going to show up in my life. I'm going to have learned a lesson or been a better person because I had to go through what I had to go through with my daddy. And it's going to help me out of a pinch. I know that. So everything is as it should be. That's so beautiful. So now that it's been, gosh, a little over a year later since our first episode, how do you want to leave your mark now? Has anything changed? Yeah, I think I want to leave my mark now. I think a lot of people um, during the global pandemic have learned that the hustle and the bustle is very much overrated. Yeah, it's true. You know, taking time for yourself and doing self-care, and that doesn't mean a shopping spree. It goes beyond a bubble bath. It goes beyond, uh, you know, taking a yoga class. It's really Self-care is really the art of saying no. Start saying no more often to things that really don't enhance your life, things that don't make you feel good, things that you simply know that you don't want to do. That's self-care. Yeah. You know, and I think that a lot of people are learning that because when you look at it, like I look at my mom, she's 92 years old. So for all intents and purposes, my mom has lost a year of her life by being in this global pandemic. That's not okay with me. But those of us who are younger, now we know we have to make up for this year. Yeah. And it doesn't mean going right back out and running in the rat race. No, no, no. It means taking care of ourselves and acknowledging that relationships and connections is what really got us through this global pandemic. So I true. Have people in my life, and I'm sure you do too, because we live in New York City, which is a lonely place filled with very driven people. And I'm sure you know a lot of people that have been alone during this time. And your heart yes. aches for them. It's true. Your heart aches for them. And I may be a single woman, with no children, but I've never been alone this entire pandemic. I've been surrounded in love and I've been covered and I've been cared for. And people have come to my aid every which way. And I've come to others' aid. So it feels really good. So that's how I want to leave my mark. You know, my dad would always say, you only get out what you put in. So I'm putting in lots of love, caring, support, nurturing. And I hope that's why I'm able to get out and I need to make myself a little withdrawal. So well said, Bevy. Ugh. And your book, I was saying this to Bevy before we started recording, but it's like Bevy gave birth to this book. It's <laughs> so full of, well, of course, personality and energy and spirit, such amazing advice. And you're an amazing storyteller. And I can't wait for people to read it. Thank you. Thank you so much. One of the things I hope that we would touch on, so I have to just say it. Yeah. For us, it gets greater later. That's one of my most important mantras. It gets greater later. So if you are listening to us, you have to understand something. You're just 41 or something, right? Me? Yeah. Babe, I love you. No, I'm 46. So she's 46. I'm 54. We've had several successful careers. 
and now we're embarking upon new ones. So it gets greater later. Please do not feel the pressure. And we're both working in, and we've always worked in youth-oriented industries, and yet we've yeah. made a wall. We've it's made true. a wall. So take your information, take all of the things that you've learned over the years, and use that as ammunition to fuel your life. Use that. Don't feel bad because of your age. Really kind of lean into it and accept it, acknowledge it, and play to the strengths of being a grown-ass person. Because I certainly do. I go in there and let them know, well, I'm 54. So let me tell you what really happened during that era that you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You school them. Bevy school. There's got to be Bevy school. I feel like that would be a good thing to do. And by the way, you know, it's funny. I didn't bring up It Gets Greater Later because we spent so much time talking about it in the first yeah. episode. So if you're listening, you need to listen to episode one and yeah. this new episode. And then you will get the complete Bevy education. Yes. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at Aliza Licht XO. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalicht.com for more information. And just remember this. If change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.